like to say good evening to each one of you. Hope you had a good day. We had a very pleasant day, made some visits, and got to see some people, talk to them about the church. What a great subject that is. If you're visiting here tonight, it's already been said, but I want to say it too, that we want to welcome you and thank you for being here. If you're from this community, we especially appreciate your presence and hope that you can come back during the meeting. We've been studying all week on a variety of different subjects. And tonight we're going to talk about something that I believe affects each one of us, and it can have a very negative effect on each one of us. To get the title of this lesson, Who is your master? And we get that from the idea that we do have a master. And sometimes, even though the Bible says what our master should be, sometimes we slip into a situation where we might have another master. Now throughout time, we've seen, even in American history, a very dark time in our history that we had slavery in this country. Also, the children of Israel were enslaved. We read in Exodus, the first chapter, verse 8 through 14, about this situation that the children of Israel, we saw that they were in. I want to look at that for just a minute because there's some characteristics of this that we want to pull out. Now, there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of, of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them. Let's say multiply and it come to pass that when there falleth out of any war, they join us also unto our enemies and fight against us. And so get them up out of the land. Therefore they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh treasure cities Pitam and Remes. So we see the children of Israel here have been enslaved. It goes on here and says, but the more that they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were grieved because of the children of Israel. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. That's how they made them to serve. They had enslaved these people and they were hard on them. They made them serve with rigor. And they made their, bit, their lives bitter with hard bondage, with mortar, in mortar and in brick, and with all manner of service in the field, and all their service wherein they made them serve was with rigor. And we're going to talk about rigor here in just a minute. We're going to explain that. You know, slavery still exists today. According to the Anti-Slavery International, the world's oldest human rights organization, there are currently over 20 million people in bondage in bondage. And a lot of them, I would suppose, are serving with rigor. Because that's how the children of Israel were described and how their service was and what their situation was. What is rigor? Well, if you look up that word and the meaning of it, it means harshness or severity, cruelty. So the children of Israel had slave masters. They had masters that were over them, that were cruel to them. And they had to serve under that situation for many, many times. In America today, we have a modern day slave master. And that's what I want to focus on tonight. 
I wanted to set the tone for this tonight to, to know what a master is. Because in this situation that we just read about in, with the children of Israel, it was not a good situation. There's some characteristics of, of slavery we're going to pull out tonight, but we're going to talk about the master that sometimes we often see in today society in America. And what is that? It's our finances or our lack of ability to deal with our finances. In Proverbs 22 and 7, the Bible says here, the rich ruleth over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender. Now, we're going to talk about finances tonight. We're going to talk about the biblical concept of finances and what the Bible says about borrowing and all of that such a thing. We're going to look at some motivations. We're going to look at some Scriptures that, that deal with that. But I want to point out now and right now that the Bible does not condemn being wealthy or rich. But the Bible doesn't condemn being poor either. So if you're poor, there's no condemnation and there's no glory. And neither is it for you if you're rich. It's how we get there. It's how we deal with it. And how we apply our principles in life to our finances. Kind of a strange topic. Some of you here may have, and, and maybe currently, doing the Dave Ramsey method. Now, I don't know all about Dave Ramsey, but I know one thing, he's got a pretty good financial plan. If you're doing that, great. Because he's got some really good things to say about that. In our area, uh, sometimes they'll have little blips on the radio, AM radio, and that's where I hear him sometimes. And they'll advertise the Dave Ramsey show. And he'll, he'll have a comment on there or a question. He says, have you ever financed a pizza? That's kind of an odd thing to say. Have you ever financed a pizza? Well, what he's talking about is some people get their finances in such a wreck and they're living from month to month paying the minimum on the credit cards, paying just enough to get by, and they want a pizza. And they may not be able to afford a pizza, but they want one real bad. So the plastic goes down and the pizza gets bought and they have just now financed a pizza. You know, when you look, think about it in those terms, you think, my goodness, I've done that. <laughs> and I can tell you I've done it. I've done those types of things. So when I speak to you, I don't speak with great authority in this area, but I do speak with some experience. And most often, and I want to say most often, in the United States today, financial problems come from our own devices. They come through our own poor habits. In America, almost every household has at least one credit card, and it's not wrong to have a credit card. That's not what I'm getting at. Sometimes what we do with them, and sometimes our motivation to what we do with them, is what the problem is. I want to tell you a story about my daughter Kayla. This is used with permission. So if you know Kayla and you tell her your dad was up there telling stories on you, she knows about it. She was in college at Lamar University, and she comes home from college one day, and she's wearing a nice T-shirt. It says Discover, and it's got all kinds of stuff on it, you know, but pretty snazzy, you know. I look at that T-shirt, and I go, mm-hmm. Where'd you get the T-shirt, Kayla? Oh, I got it at school. Who gave it to you? Well, they were giving them out at the student center. I said, when did the credit card come in, Kayla? 
was a dead look on her face. I don't have to keep that credit card. I said, I understand that. I understand quite, quite about that kind of stuff. I said, when's it coming? Well, uh, they said it would be here in a couple of weeks. I said, when it gets here, don't open the package. Don't open the envelope. We're going to open it together. And she'll confirm this one. When it came in, we sat down, we opened it together, we took the pair of scissors, cut it all up, taped it back on the on the paperwork, put it back in the envelope and sent it back to them. Cancel this account. You know what happened? About two weeks later, another one came with a different name on it. Two of them came off of that, I guess, one application. She might have filled out two applications, I don't know. Now, what do you think she would have done with that at the ripe old age of about 18, 19, 20 years old? I can't remember what year she was in college. Some of you in this room may have had that same situation happen to you. I can remember when I got a credit card. Man, it sure was easy when everybody said, hey, let's go out to eat. We may have been carrying a balance on that and paying interest on it every month, but you know what? We went out to eat. And in today's society, that's just kind of how it goes. They are setting up shop at these universities and a lot of different places, and they're giving out these credit cards. And many Americans are in that revolving wheel of credit, paying minimum balances and going from month to month. On average, today's consumer has a total of 13 credit obligations with a credit bureau. And this includes credit cards, department store cards, gas cards, all of what revolving accounts and some, some form of credit. Thirteen? Do you think that they're trying to get you signed up for credit? You betcha. Now the next time, and most everybody's got a credit card, and I'm sure you, a lot of you pay your balance at the end of the month and all that, but I want you to look on that credit card statement. Read it. And we had one come in with about a $2,000 balance, if I remember correctly. I believe that's where I got this information. But if I were to pay just the minimum on a $2,000, in other words, I had $2,000 balance. I cut up the credit card. I never use it again, and I pay the minimum payment as that comes in each month. This is the minimum. Nothing more, nothing less, just the minimum. It would take 13 years to pay that $2,000 off. I heard one figure the other day that it, if you had $10,000 on your credit card and you cut the credit card up, it'd take you 29 years to pay it off at minimum payments. Do you see what that's doing to people? The lure of that, the easy money, the keep, keep stacking it on there. I knew one woman that got up to $45,000 on credit cards. Now, I'm going to tell you, I don't think she bought $45,000 worth of stuff. But by the time you're late a couple of times and you can't make that minimum payment and all of this kind of stuff happens and all the fine print kicks in. The fine print that we never look at and never read that says that you're going to have fees and penalties and interest rate jumps and all of these things and before long she had $45,000 in credit card. Now, is credit bad? No, credit is not bad. Credit within itself can be a blessing. There's a lot of church buildings that would never got built if it, at the time in a timely manner if it hadn't been for credit. Now we could say, well, you know, we just shouldn't do that, and we just shouldn't build them until we get that. 
Get the money in the bank and then we build it. Well, and I understand that. It's a great concept. But most of the time, we need to get to work in a certain area before that time frame comes. We need to be saving souls in a certain area and get a building up and get going so that we can get out there and preach the gospel. So, is credit bad? No, credit's not bad. Sometimes it's uh, the motivation. Sometimes it's a blessing. Sometimes it's a curse. You know, poor finances are said to be the number two cause of divorce in America. Now, the number one cause is supposed to be communication, but I'm still, in my heart, think that it might still be the finances, but maybe not. Why is that? Why do we have such poor finances? Well, there's a variety of reasons, and I want to go through just a few of them, and I think we're going to probably hit on most everything. I want to start with the first one. Poor finances due to poor health, and you know you can't help that. And so I want to say up front that some people have ruined finances because they have poor health, and, and we are compassionate with those people, and, and we hate that, and, and this is really not the thrust of this lesson. And I realize that there are people that have poor finances due to poor health. Next one is poor finances due to poor spending habits. It's not that they necessarily covet something and just have to have something, but rather they just kind of go about life haphazardly in their spending. We'll talk about all of these here in detail. Poor finances due to laziness. And everybody, you know, when you when you say that, you probably think, eh, yeah, I know, a, yeah, I know a guy that <laughs> their finances are wrecked. But you know what? If you got out and got a job, that probably wouldn't happen, would it? You're right. But there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people who are lazy. They don't want to work. This is a land of opportunity. Oh, I'm trying not to get on the soapbox on this one. We live in America. If you want to work, you can get out and work. Now, I'm not talking about if you're not able to work. That's a whole other category and that's a whole other thing. But if you can get up and get on your feet and get out that door right there, you can find a job in this country and you can make a living. may not be the best living, but you can make a living. But some people have poor finances because of laziness. They don't want to get out of bed and go to work. And some people have poor finances because they covet things. They see things that they have to have in their life, they think. And they're willing to do some things because of that that cause them some pretty poor finances. And it gets them in a bind. And that's because some people can't be satisfied, number one, or they can't wait. It's an inordinate desire to have something. What did Jesus say about that? And he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. You know at the end of your life how many toys you have in the barn or in the garage or how much jewelry a person has or how many vacations they've been on does not define them other than the fact that that's what they were living for. Yet some people have a strong desire, a push in their life to have certain things and they can't wait for them. Is it wrong to have things? No, it's not wrong. And if I guess I've got a message to the young folks here tonight, 
is that's what we really need to pay attention to. And we're going to go in some detail on each one of these here in just a minute. Let's go back to the reasons again. I want to start with the first one, poor finances due to poor health. <clears throat> in Luke 8, 43-44, talks about a woman here that touched the hem of the garment of Jesus. That's going to be the subject of a, of a lesson later on this week, but right now we're just going to talk about her for a minute. And a woman having an a issue of blood for 12 years, which had spent all her living upon physicians, neither could be healed of any. So she's got a, uh, a condition, a medical condition, that causes her to have to spend every bit of her money. And this is what she did. did. Verse 44. Came behind him and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her issue of blood staunched. It dried up. She had a problem that nobody could help her with, but Jesus Christ did. Who did? Christ did. Because that's where the only true help is. In Hebrews 13 and 5, we know that God will never leave us. He's never going to forsake us. That's what the Scripture tells us right here. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as we have for He has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Now we're talking about hell, but I use this Scripture to point out the fact that, that He's never going to leave us. He's never going to forsake us. And no matter what happens to us in, in this life, if we follow Him and do His will, then we're going to be in a place where there's no more tears, there's no more sorrow, and no more pain. God will not forsake us. He will not forget us. And never leave us. What about poor spending habits? Well, like I said, maybe we don't covet, maybe we just make poor choices. You know, our finances and spending habits should be godly. Let's think about that for just a minute. The way we spend money, how would that relate to Scripture? Romans 12 and 11, Paul tells the church at Rome here, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Slothful, that means lazy in business. We don't need to do that. We need to be on top of our finances because when we get that in order, we're going to be able to live life a whole lot more better. You should not be wasteful of your financial methods. Now, how do you do that? Well, common sense would tell you to use your head. <laughs> when you're buying something, look for the deal on it. Well, I'm going to give you some practical tips. Try to get a better deal on something. Shop. Use coupons. Really? Yes, really. Don't be slothful in business. There's ways that you can save money, and you can take that money and turn it around and use it for the Lord. Shop sales, buy used items, do what you need to do to have good spending habits, to conserve and not be wasteful. Is that a biblical principle? To not be wasteful? Well, you probably know it is because i got a Scripture coming up. I love this. This is uh, the miracle when Jesus took just a little bit of food and multiplied it and 
fed 5,000 people. Let's see what it says. And Jesus said, make, make the men sit down, and there was much grass in the place, and the men sat down in a number of about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when He had given thanks, He distributed to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were set down, and likewise of the fishers as much as they would. When they were filled, He said unto His disciples, this is what Jesus said, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Now we're talking about Jesus. We're talking about a guy that could have just done a miracle and made that much more. If he'd have wanted it done, he could, but that wasn't the point. The point was, and He taught us that, we're not to be wasteful. When God has blessed you with what you have, you need to be conservative with that. Does that mean you don't need to have the things that you need and want? No. God wants us to be conservative with what we do and be not wasteful. God's blessed you with things. He's blessed me with things. And He teaches us here not to be wasteful. That's kind of an odd concept. You wouldn't think that we could pull that from Scripture, but you know what? Jesus taught us that. Be thankful for our bounty. Develop a good business head. Think before you buy. Think through the things that you do. And if you need advice, go to someone that's successful. Go to another Christian man or woman that's successful in this area. If you're struggling with these concepts that I'm talking about tonight, you find a brother or a sister that's been successful in this area, and you sit down and you seek counsel with them. And you find out what they do. You know, if I want financial advice, I'm not going to go to somebody that's bankrupt, somebody that's poor, somebody that somebody's having to prop up and buy food for. And I know people get in that situation and I'm not condemning them. I'm just saying I'm going to go to a successful person. I'm going to say, what can I do to do what I need to do better. There's a saying that I, I say it a lot of times. Poor, poor people do things in poor ways. Why don't you think about that for just a minute? Poor people do things in poor ways. That's the reason they're poor, by the way. Because they don't think through what they do. We're talking about people that get their finances in a wreck to the point where they can't buy a car. They need to get to work. They got to have a car to get to work, but they can't buy a car. So what do they do? They scrape up enough little bit of money and go to the the people that finance them by the week, and they pay an exorbitant amount of money for a car. Or they go to the rental place and rent a TV rather than be able to buy one. It's not wrong to go to these places. It's just not the best and most efficient way to do things. And I guess what I'm saying here is we don't need to be slothful in business. We need to take care of what we have. You know, the next one I want to talk about is laziness. Poor finances due to laziness. In 2 Thessalonians 3 and 10, the Bible says here, For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. Now I want to tell you, this is pretty well abused in a lot of places in our country. Because I believe there's a lot of people that can work. And they choose not to. The Bible says, if a man don't work, don't let him eat. 
And a lot of people have wrecked their finances, destroyed their homes. It's been the core complaint in a lot of divorces. A lot of competition there in a couple when finances get bad and things start to get dicey. And sometimes a lazy man will even resort to some pretty undesirable things. A lazy man will do some things that really shouldn't be done. Let's talk about a couple of them. In Proverbs 21 and 6, the getting of treasures by lying tongue is vanity tossed to and fro of them that seek death. Getting treasures by a lying tongue. How many times have you ever heard about somebody that maybe came up, maybe you've had this happen to you. You come up on the parking lot, you're walking out of a restaurant, and a guy comes up and he said, you know, my car's broke down over here and I'm trying to get my baby to the doctor and I need $15. Happens all the time. How about the guy on the side of the road that says, we'll work for food. They don't hardly say that on the signs no more because I guess they've been challenged too many times when somebody says, hey, i got a job for you. Get in the truck and we'll go work. And they go, oh, you know, I'd like to, but you know, I'm busy. Because the truth of the matter is that there is a significant number of people that will lie about their situation. They'll go to the welfare office. They'll go to these different government agencies and they'll tell lies in order to get compensation of some degree. Why is that? It's because of laziness. In Ephesians 4 and 28, the Bible says, Let him that stole steal no more, but, re but rather let him labor, working with his hands a thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. So we see here that a lazy man might resort to that, stealing from you. Now, I don't want anybody to raise your hand, but how many people have ever had, had something stolen from you? Probably everybody in this room. At some point in time, you laid something down. Maybe, you, ladies, you might have been at Walmart and you let, left your purse open. That's what Claudia does sometimes. It makes me pretty nervous. Somebody reaches in there and gets the bill folded and away they go. Claudia had her credit card stolen out of her purse in, in uh, her classroom where she teaches one time. And you've had those type of things happen to you. We talked about a thief coming in, in the middle of the night. You know, a thief in the night. We talked about that. And we were talking about that at supper tonight. And it's a surprise to us. And why is it a surprise to you? Because you wouldn't do that. And so because you wouldn't do that, you're not prepared mentally for that. Now, a lot of you that know me know that I had a career in law enforcement. So I was talking to people all the time that were shocked. I, I can't believe it. I came home and I looked in my garage and my lawnmower was gone. And as a policeman taking that report, you're going, yes, ma'am. I mean, it, it, I'm not shocked, you know. As a policeman, I see it every day. But the person that had the lawnmower shock, was shocked because they didn't think it would happen. But that's what people will do. Lazy people will steal from you. Or him that steals, steal no more. They'll do some desperate things, people will, in the realm of laziness. And you know those lazy people, when they get their finances in a wreck and everything's burned out and burned up and everybody's had it with them, they begin to do things 
that their fam they begin not to do things that their family needs. In First Timothy five and eight. But if any provide not for his own, he's talking about his own family here. He talks about a person that doesn't provide for their family. And especially for those of his own house. He had denied the faith, and the Bible says he's worse than the infidel. Boy, that's some strong words, folks. Worse than an infidel? You bet. That's what God's Word says. Lazy people that get themselves in a situation and can't control their spending habits, and then they can't take care of their family. The Bible's pretty harsh on that. God's Word has plenty to say about finances. And then finally, let's focus on that covetousness. If you're looking at the screen, that ain't got all the letters it needs. <laughs> A couple of S's there <laughs> that are gone. I'll try to fix that when this is over. That happens to you sometimes. You, oh, that ain't right. <clears throat> this is, again, the inability to control yourself and your finances. And this right here, this one, has been the cancer that eats at the backbone of people all over the world and tears apart families in the church. Let's see what Paul says about it when he talks to the Colossians in 3 and 5. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanliness, uncleanness, rather, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Well, that's a pretty nasty group of sins, isn't it? That's where God's Word puts it, is in with all these other nasty things. When somebody looks upon something else and was willing to do things that they shouldn't do in order to get it. Paul writes to Timothy here in 1 Timothy 6 and 10, For the love of money is the root of all evil which while some coveted after and have erred from the faith, ah, here we go, talks about coveting after that, and have erred from the faith, had strayed from the faith, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. You see, people that love money have many sorrows. Now I want you to notice that when I was, well, when I was a kid, you know, you hear people all the time say, you know, money's the root of all evil. Well, no, that's not quite true. Money's not the root of all evil. It's the love of money. And the Scripture's pretty clear about that right there. They've erred from the faith and they pierced themselves through with many sorrows. This brings a lot of trouble to people right here. This is a cancer. And it's something I believe we need to certainly... We need to know about, we need to learn about, we need to teach others about. And, and if you are in this situation... We need to seek counsel for that. I want to talk about one of the most striking examples of this, and it's Ananias and Sapphira from Acts the fifth chapter. Now, this is a bit of a long reading. We're going to stop in that and talk about it just a minute. And you may be familiar with that. If not, we're going to tear it apart a little bit and kind of figure out what what goes on here. <clears throat> it says, but a certain man named Ananias and with Sapphira his wife sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, that that means she knew about it, and brought 
a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. So they sell a possession, him and his wife, they all know about that, and they bring a certain part of it, but not all of it. But that's how they're going to represent it, aren't they? They're going to represent it as being all of it. And they laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why have Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back a part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And he asked him, he said, you know, it was your money. You had it. You could have kept back, you know, but he represented it as being all. And after it was sold, was it not thine own power? Hast thou not conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And great fear came on all of them that heard these things. And the young men arose, wound him up. It's kind of an odd term, but this is what they apparently did with dead people. And carried him out and buried him. Now this continues on. Because this is just him. Let's see what happens when she comes in. And it was about a space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yeah, for so much. Then Peter saith, said unto her, How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Peter asked her, How could you do that? How could you conspire together with your husband to do that, to tempt the Spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door and shall carry thee out. Then she fell down straightway at his feet and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. What was the problem here? Was it the problem that they hadn't given enough money? What was the driving force here? It was the love of money. They coveted that money. Here's what Jesus said about treasures. In Matthew 6, verses 19-21. through 21. Jesus says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. There's those thieves again. And Jesus says, Don't be so worried about all this stuff down here. Because it's, you know, bugs will eat it, it'll rust away, people will steal it from you. You ain't going to be able to hang on to it. And verse 20 says, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus says that where your treasure is, that's what you're going to concentrate on. That's what it means when he says there your heart will be also. That's where you're going to spend your time, your effort, your thoughts, your desires, your push, is where your heart's at. So what does Jesus say? He said don't, don't do it on the stuff here. You better lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. That's where you need to, to spend your time, where your heart should be. 
Because the love of money is really an I, the lust of the flesh. 1 John 2 and 16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The lust of the eyes. That sound like the love of money to you? Sounds like it to me. may not be all that it is, but it, but it certainly includes that. And this is the work of the prince of this world. This described in John 12 and 31. Where it says the devil's come to kill and destroy. We used this scripture the other day in one of our previous lessons about the devil. He's described as an adversary. He's described as a roaring lion. What does a roaring lion do? It devours the weak. You know, the roaring lion, he don't go out there and get the strongest one in the pack. What does he do? He gets the weakest one in the pack. He gets the fawn or whatever that they're after. And that's the way that adversary is for us. We get in a weakened state when we put ourselves in a weakened state. Do you think the devil would use finances against you? Yeah. So it begs the question, what basic decisions do you need to make about money in order to be pleasing to God? Well, number one, we have to know that God's number one. Matthew 6 and 24, No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You can't serve two masters. We started out this lesson saying, Who's your master? This is what Jesus is talking about right here. You can't serve two masters. For either you will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. That's the way we do things. Putting God number one in our lives. Putting Christ number one as our example. Matthew 6, 31 through 33. Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that, that ye have need of all these things. God knows what you need, He knows that. And what he's talking about here is not having an inordinate desire and affection for things in this life. Don't burn up all your time on these things, Christ is telling us. Verse 33, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Does that mean you're going to be rich? No. Does that mean you're going to have what you need? Yes. We're not assured treasures on earth. but we're certainly assured that we're going to be taken care of. When we follow God's plan, we will be taken care of. What is God's plan? We've been talking about it. We work. We use good decisions. We work at what we do. So what's the second thing we must do about money in order to please God? That's to understand, for example, from the parable of the sower that the cares and riches and pleasures of this world will choke us. 
<coughs> that was not intended. It'll choke us. That's the, the term that the Bible uses here. It talks about that seed that's being sown. It's talked about the cares and concerns of this life. And the Bible says here, "...and that which fell among thorns are they, which when they have heard, go forth and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life, and bring no fruit to perfection." These cares and riches and pleasures of this life will choke us. So why should we be just concerned about all of that? We want to please God. The reason we want to do all of these things is we need to be striving to please God. In 1 John 5 and 3, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. They're not grievous. We can do these things. We can learn how to do these things. It's going to take effort, but we can do it. And if we're financially buried in debt, how in the world are we going to be able to help someone that's in need? Think about that for just a minute. I wonder if we really give a serious thought to that. If we are so strapped in our finances because we just had to have something or we couldn't control our spending or we made poor decisions or we were unwilling to get out and get a job, how are we going to help somebody that needs it? In 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 and 18, this talks about the rich of the world, but I'm going to use all of this and we'll explain it. Charge them that are, that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. That they do good, that they be, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. Now we could use some more scriptures on that about how that we should supply the needs to people that they when they're in down and out and all the things that, that we know are the Christian values from the Bible. <clears throat> we know that we should help people when they need help. And I'm certainly not advocating that we don't do that. If people legitimately need help, we need to help them. That's a Christian value, a Christian virtue, and it's something that we certainly should do. <clears throat> The ability to help your neighbor, the ability to help the church. It gives us an opportunity when our finances are in order to help evangelize the world. Think about that. Think about all the things that are going on. What would you be able to contribute to that if you're financially poor? You know, when we teach on, on giving, a lot of times we use 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. We used it in one of the previous lessons. Now concerning collection for the saints, as I give an order to the church of Galatia, even so do ye. A lot of times we use this to talk about the frequency of when we give and how we're going to give and, and all of that. I want us to focus on the last part of that this reading here. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him and store it as God has prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. We're to give as we've been prospered. The more we've been prospered, the more we can give. If we've got all of this stuff that we're talking about in order, we're going to be financially able to help more people. There's a lot of need out there right now. <clears throat> I want to read from 2 Corinthians 9 the where Paul talks about the heart of, of giving here. 
Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren that they would go before you, go before unto you, and make up beforehand your bounty, whereof ye have notice before, that the same night the same might be ready as a manner of bounty and not of covetousness. But this I say: He that soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly; he that soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposed in his heart, so let him give. Not grudgingly or necessity, for God love a cheerful giver. Now there's a few things that we want to notice in here and stress. That we need to be a cheerful giver. That needs to come from the heart. Not out of necessity, not a tax or something like that. And we need to have a purpose. We need to plan for that. I think it's good business to do that. To plan on what you have and what you get. Now some people can't do that because of the way their income comes to them. <clears throat> but as we purpose in our heart, we make decisions on that. God wants us to be cheerful givers. God wants us to do that as we have been prospered. Now today there's more needs in the church than I've seen ever since I've been in the church, I guess. Great things are happening. We were talking today and I got to counting up evangelists. How many evangelists that we have working in our system? 31 evangelists. That's a lot of men. We have a work in Nigeria that we support. Wonderful work. Several preachers on support over there. And those funds come from the United States. From people who have the ability to give. People that, who have designed their finances and their work habits and their ethics to the point that they have the ability to do that. In India, there's over 250, 250 preachers on support in India. And that number variates a little bit. We could get with Van. He could tell us probably what the latest number is, but there's a bunch of them. How are they supported? Same way. From men and women, brothers and sisters in Christ in the United States who have carefully skilled their finances and designed their financial health so that they can do that. There's church buildings being built, and I'm not telling you anything. You got one under construction. We went out there today, by the way. That it's really, I mean, every day it kind of changes, you know. It's really pretty. I know you're excited about that. We have opportunities to evangelize in new areas and make connections with other congregations. Mike Hall and some of the other brethren have been up in the Northeast and they just got back, I think, and I think they've even connected with even more brethren up there. But you know those things take finances. There's travel expenses, new congregations being planted and established, benevolent needs inside the church. Are you able to do this? There's a question. Are you able to take part in that? Are you content in your life to the point that you're able to do that? The Bible says in Hebrews 13 and 5, let your conversation, again that means lifestyle, be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For He hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Now that's all in one idea, isn't it? Here it's talking about that we shouldn't covet things. That should be our lifestyle. 
We should be content with what we have. And then we're given an assurance. We're given a blessed assurance. Not blessed assurance, but we're given an assurance. That God's never going to leave us. That's a lot of comfort. When times are hard, when things are bad, when it seems like everything's turned the wrong way and upside down sometimes for some of us, God's never going to leave us. Never going to forsake us. Financial slavery has the same characteristics as any other kind of slavery. There's three characteristics here. Total control of the slave. Think about that for just a minute. If somebody is in bondage, you think about the children of Israel. They, they were being controlled. They were being controlled. They couldn't do what they wanted to. They had to do what the, what the Master said. And just like that kind of slavery, financial slavery demands loyalty. Loyalty to the Master. And then finally, a severe consequence for those who flee that obligation improperly. We see that all the time. People get to a place in their life where they just don't know how they're going to do it financially. I'm not saying that people that have to file bankruptcy are bad people. I'm not saying that. But I'll tell you this. If somebody has to do that, there's going to be consequences. There's going to be a long period of time before they can regain financial status. And there's going to be some problems with that. So it comes with some severe consequence. You can be emancipated by following the will of God. Emancipated from this master. This financial taskmaster. The borrower can only be the servant when he becomes a borrower. That's the only time we can become the servant in this situation. A slave wants to be free, but he can't. You can be free. Let Jesus be the master of your finances as well as the rest of your life. Who is your master? Lesson's yours tonight. Thank you for your attention. I hope it's been of some service to you. If the church can be of assistance to you as we close this lesson tonight, we do give an invitation. There's one here subject to the gospel call for baptism. Or if there's one that needs the prayers of the church or if we can help you in any way, in any, any fashion, we'd ask you to come forward, have a seat on the pew, and we'd be glad to help you. Let us stand and sing.